Hi there, I'm Jake Humphrey and this is High Performance, our conversation for you every single week. This podcast reminds you that it's within your ambition, your purpose, your story. It's all there. We just help you unlock it by turning the lived experiences of the planet's highest performers into your life lessons. And during the Rugby League World Cup, we're bringing you special episodes with our wonderful professor, Damien Hughes, talking to the biggest names in the sport. We've had some incredible conversations over the last month, and today is no exception. Today, Damien, who has a long, prestigious record of working with the greatest teams and people in Rugby League, talks to Sam Tompkins. Now, he is a rugby league legend. He's won the coveted Man of Steel award twice, three Super League Grand Finals. He's the current captain of England in the Rugby League World Cup. And he talks to us about the culture at Wigan Warriors that changed his life. He gives us invaluable insights into the biggest life and career decisions he's made, such as going from Wigan to New Zealand and then coming back home. Also, how achieving his dreams weren't everything he thought and how happiness has to come from outside rugby. This guy is a proper leader. You can see what he's doing right now with England in the Rugby League World Cup. And I'm so excited to bring you this conversation. Damien, as always, thank you so much for your knowledge, your probing questions, your understanding and empathy of the people you're talking to. So welcome to the latest episode of the High Performance Podcast, Rugby League World Cup Specials. It's time to welcome the England captain to the conversation, ladies and gentlemen. This is Professor Damien Hughes talking to Sam Tompkins. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Well, Sam, it's a real privilege to welcome you to High Performance. So what's your definition of high performance? For me, it's in, in two parts, really. The first part being the easier one, which I think is, is finding your own way to get to the elite level of, of whatever it is that you're doing. But then think what separates good from great is the ability to adapt and be flexible to stay in that elite bracket at the top. High performance for me is having that, that ability to, you know, whatever changes things out of your own control, you can adapt and stay right at the top level. Well, let's start at the start then, because I think that theme of having to adapt and change is something that you were adopting from a really young age. I think there's a common perception about you that you were this teenage prodigy where you almost had it easy when you came through at Wigan yeah, as a young man. <laughs> but there's actually something that was going on behind the scenes there that is yeah. far different from the reality. As a young kid, as a 7 to 11-year-old, you know, I was one of the best players and I think I was just faster than most kids. Then sort of into my teens, 14, 15, 16, I was a, I was a late developer. There was, there was lads my age getting beards and going through puberty a lot faster than I was and, and I, was, I was real small, pretty skinny and... You know, as much as I wanted it and and tried, I wasn't up to standard really. And when I left school, I got asked to come on the Wigan Academy, and they've got 
a few ways they do it. So some lads will get paid money and, and they go to college. So they go to college, do something there through the day and then they go straight to training at four o'clock. Yeah. But they're all getting paid. But then they keep some on uh, what's called pay-as-you-play. You have to get your own job and earn your money that way. But then if you play and you win, you get 25 quid. So I was one of the pay-as-you-play young lads. So I had to get a job when as soon as I left school. You know, my, my ideal was finish high school, get a contract, go to college, and that's what I wanted to do. But that wasn't to be. I just got told, you know, in that in that group. So tell us about that moment then, because that always intrigues me, because that's a real crucible moment in your career. You can either believe what the coaches are telling you, that you're not as good as the others, and or they don't have that much faith in you, or you can bite down on your gum shield and find a different way. As a real young kid... You know, what do you want to be when you grow up? Rugby player. That was it. And it was only when I got to about 13 that I realised you can't just choose what you do. It might not work out. And when I got told that, look, you're not going to get paid. And I knew I wasn't at the same level. You know, it wasn't that I was, there was anything sinister in it. I wasn't as good as the other players. So I fully understood it when I got told. But I still wanted it. And I wanted it more than other lads. And I knew I did. There was lads that were getting paid and they were at college and they were buying a nice car and, and, and I knew I wanted it more than them. I just couldn't do it. <laughs> so it right. was, it was you know, frustrating. So I got a job as a, an apprentice greenkeeper on a golf course because it was a job that I could start really early and I'd be finished by three o'clock, meaning I could get back to Wigan because we'd start training at 4.30. I got a loan off my grandma for a £1,000, bought a scooter because I was only 16 and I used to get on my scooter in the morning to work and then after work go training and Sean Wayne now the, the England boss was the academy coach at the time and he just wouldn't pick me in the team so I was doing this I was getting up I was going to work I was so tired and I'd we'd finish training at like 8, 9 o'clock at night every night or 4 nights 5 nights a week and I'd go home have some food go to bed get up I'd be raking bunkers and cutting grass at five o'clock in the morning again and not getting picked to play, which was what all I wanted to do. And I used to come home and I'd say to my dad, I've not been picked again this week. And my dad used to say, well, you need to go and ask Sean. So I'd knock on Sean's office. Sean, why am I not picked this week? And he'd go, right. They'd write a list down. The list was this long. And and I knew, you know, it it was a long list. A lot of things I couldn't do. A lot of it, you know, I was still pretty slight. And I couldn't argue with it. I was like, yeah, there's better kids. And, and, and that went on for like a full year. Um, I got a few few games in and out when, when there was injuries. And then there was a semi-final and it was Wigan against Widnes. A mass brawl kicked off right at the end, 13 on 13. Everyone throwing punches. And um, we won the game, but we got eight players banned in this semi-final. Right. I was the only one smiling because I was like, I must be in. So I played the final for the under-18s the next week. I was in, played pretty well. And, you know, I thought this, I'm in it here. You know, I played well in a final one. What that might be, the, you know, the, the thing that pushes me on. I went for a meeting at the club and they said, oh, we've, we've nothing for you for the next season. Because I'd still only played sort of six or seven games. And the fact that I played in the final was not through earning it. It was through well, luck of, of, yeah. of a fight kicking off. And they said, you can go and you can go somewhere else if you want, or you can come back again next year and do the pay as you play, £25 if you get picked and win. 
that was tough. That was the point where I thought it's probably not going to be for me at Wigan. So let's just pause there a minute because you've described that this has gone on for a year this far and, and I'm assuming that for 90% of people listening to this, they'd have decided it wasn't for them long before this second meeting. So when you're getting up at five in the morning, you're going doing the green keeping, you then go into training, getting the news that you're not picked and go, having to go again. What did keep you going? Desperation for it to work. I can't think of any other way that I would have done it. I still had the fire in me to want to be a rugby player. When I was raking bunkers, I was thinking about playing rugby. When I was going training and I'd not get picked, I just kept thinking, that's all I want to do, though. I never wanted to be a greenkeeper for 50 years. Yeah. You know, I thought, what are my other options? I didn't have anything else that I was passionate about, luckily. Because if there was, yeah, maybe I could have got swayed, you know, if there was something else that I was, I was into. But there wasn't, that was it. There was never any tough decisions. It was yeah. never... Or should I should I pack in rugby or not? That never crossed my mind for one second through any of that. But what about the people around you? Say like your mum and dad or your brothers or friends. Were they not saying to you, Sam, I think it might be time to look at a different option? No, no. I think at the time, my older brother Joel was, Joel came through as the best teenager of his of his age group. Joel was already playing first team. He was only two years older than me. He was playing first team. I couldn't get an academy contract. So I saw, I saw what Joel had, really wanted that. And my mum and dad still believed I could do it. Right. They backed me. And it was a conversation with my mum and dad that was the most pivotal moment for my career. It was, so I got told, yeah, you, you know, you can come back next year if you want, but you don't have to. And then I got contacted by Widness and Salford. And they said, "Oh, you can come to us, and we'll we'll pay you. You know, you'll be I'd be one of the one of the better players there. So they'd pay me, you know, seven eight thousand pound a year just to come on an academy contract. And I said, right, I'll go and I'll train. I went to Widness, and I'd come from uh, Wigan. You get given like your your training kit, and every day you have to be in that training kit. You down to your socks have to be branded with it was JJB at the time." Everything's really strict. You had to, Sean Wayne used to make us carry a file of facts around with us. Right. All day, wherever you're going. So first thing in the morning, you have to pick this file of facts up and it had to be in your hand when you got training. Everyone was like, what's this about? Looking back, it wasn't about what was in the file of facts. It was a discipline thing. You had yeah. to have this file of facts to hand all the time. So I'd been involved in this for 12 months. I went to train at Widness and they turned up and it was just like amateur. They've all got different T-shirts on, kicking the ball about. And then the coach says, right, come in, lads, we'll do some training. And I trained, I was like, this isn't real rugby. You know, this isn't what I'm used to. Went and trained at Salford the week after. Same thing, I was like, I presume they'd all be pretty similar to every club and yeah, have yeah. the similar academy set up, only under 18s. Uh, but it was so different. And I, I went home and I was like, yeah, I think I'll go to Widness. Although I knew it was different, but they're offering me seven eight thousand pound it's not a huge amount of money but when you're 17 it's it was have nothing yeah or do you want to not have to go to work and you can go to college and buy a car and my mum and dad sat down and i said yeah i think i'm gonna go to witness and they were both like do you really want to go and, do you want to play first team at witness i was like well you know, it's not gonna happen at wigan and I said, I'm getting this money, I'm getting like, you know, a few grand, I can buy this car, I've seen a, a Peugeot 206 that I could get, and my mum and dad didn't have like loads of money, and they said, look, we'll find a way to get you a car, 
and we'll insure it. You can borrow your mum's car, whatever it is. Just go back to Wigan, have another crack. So at the time, it was a little bit. My mum and dad still sort of dictated what what I should do, and it was my ultimately my decision. But when they sort of said, "Look, do you want to play for Widnes first team?" and I'd never watched Widnes, I wasn't a Widnes fan. Same with Salford, it was travelling somewhere. Yeah, I wanted to play at Wigan. That was it. So they said, "Just go back and play again for free." So I did. Well, I actually went back then to my my amateur club in the off season. Went and played with my mates just for fun. And actually, going back there was was good for me because I realised I'm not. I wasn't an amateur player. I was a lot better than everyone else in the team. Yeah. Still, I just wasn't quite at the the top academy standard. Anyway, I went back into the academy about six six games in. I just got in. Don't know what I, you know. Improved a little bit in the off season, pre season. And that was it. Sort of fast forward five games and Wigan said, you've done everything we've asked, you've got yourself in, here's a contract. As fast as that? As fast so as that. You've gone two years of being kept on so the end of So sort of like 18 months of, you're not at it. And then all of a sudden, within a month, they'd seen my value and gone, they're probably sick of me being around the place. Thought, I might as well give him a deal. And yeah, so I got, I got this contract and that was it. Then I was a, a full academy player. And wow. it, was, well, it was brilliant. Th- there's two things I want to explore that has happened. The first one is, like not compromising because you've quite understandably the way you present it have you could have compromised and nobody would have questioned beyond going to witness or Salford so I want to explore the importance of not accepting what would have been second best for you and then the other one is this idea of just perseverance sometimes we don't realize how close we are to our goals when we're in the middle of it so let's take each one of them in turn how important is that willingness not to compromise on standards or goals or aspirations subsequently been for you throughout your career i think it's massive and i think i got that from a young age from my parents we were never allowed to quit anything no matter what we were doing it might have been playing football whatever it was you couldn't quit at it and i was ultra competitive as a kid i still am i only realized how competitive was when i look back at at things i used to do and my dream was play for wigan so anything apart from that, well, I'm not chasing anything else. Yeah, you know, it wasn't even, it wasn't even being a rugby player. It was playing for Wigan. Nothing really appealed to me. You know, the only time I swayed was when I got offered some money, and it was all you could. And I thought it's not going to work at Wigan. But when my mum and dad sit me down and say, "What do you really want?" Well, that's all I want. So it was stick at it. And I didn't know that I was going to get a contract the year after. I'd still be playing at Wigan for twenty five pound a week now if I had to. I'd be a greenkeeper. Because I, that that's all I wanted. I didn't feel like at the time I was suffering anyway, and it was any hardship what I was doing. It was just like that's that's what I'm going to have to do. I'm going to have to get there somehow. And you know, it was a it's a it was a brutal setup at Wigan at the time in the academy with Sean Wayne as coach. You know, we think back to the the training we did. It was full on. I remember one of the days I'd I'd gone in and asked him why why am I not playing, and he said. You're a halfback. I need you to be able to defend against the back rower running straight at you. I said, yeah. On your try line. I said, yeah. He said, can you do it? I said, yeah. So he took me on the field. He brought over Ben Kavanagh. He was 12 months older than me, about 40 kilos heavier than me. And he, I stood on my try line. He stood on 10 metre line. And he said to Ben, just run hard as you can. And Sam, you got to stop me scoring a try. So he ran at me, ran into him, knocked me straight over, scored a try easy. And he was like, well, that's it. I was like, okay. 
and I got it. I understood, but I thought, you know, one day I'll be able to tackle him. But you've just described this competitive instinct as a yeah. kid. Your brother, he must have been doing this kind of thing yeah. to you in the back garden. So what was going on internally for you when you're dusting yourself down? Next week, when he runs at me, I'm going to go even harder. I'm going to tackle him. That was it. Simple as that. I doubted myself in terms of like my ability. I doubted, but I was the most competitive at training. I was smaller than everyone. I didn't win things, but I, I knew I was going harder than other people. And for whatever reason, I just thought, keep going. I, I didn't, you know, never analysed it at the time, but I know that's all I was doing. I was just going as hard as I can constantly. So now that you're an older player, and if you can imagine looking back on young Sam at that age, running around, like trying to win at every competition, what kind of advice would you give him? stick at it like when I see young lads and you see like real talented kids that aren't that competitive I don't like it because I was around players like that and they don't they didn't deserve it in my eyes and then you see a young kid going hard as he can and he's not quite there hopefully you know he'll get his break but you get a lot of players that the break doesn't come do you know yeah. what I mean if I'd been in a different set Wigan might have said that second you look don't come back we've got someone else in. Yeah, yeah. And then it, it, it got on a different way and I'd have, I'd have gone and done something else. So there's a lot of luck involved as well. Right. So tell us about that because that Wigan environment is often spoken about in sort of revered tones amongst other coaches for, they talk about the Wigan way, the power of the culture there. What was it that you were experiencing that you could describe to people that have never set foot into it? You'd left school and you can start making your own choices. You know, you can decide if you want to go to college or get a job and you can decide if you want to go and drink and go and do things. But you go into the academy set up at Wigan and you have no choices. This is the kit you're wearing. Be here on time. If you're not there at four o'clock, if, you, if your session starts at four, if you walked in the door at one minute to four, they'd send you home. They'd be like, you're not ready to train. You should have been here 10 minutes before this. And training you had to go as hard as you could and if you if you weren't going as hard as you uh, hard as you could they knew and they'd tell you and you'd get hammered until you did or you'd get sacked you'd be out the window and i touched on before the filofax thing yeah so we all got given this big ugly leather filofax and uh in there there'd be goal sheets for each week so this week i'm gonna make 25 tackles 10 carries whatever it be, whatever your personal goals are put them in this folder and you'd go to training and Sean would say, right, everyone got the file of facts? Yeah, lift your file of facts up. And then you just have it on your hand, that'd be it. At the end of the thing, right, we'll give you all a, a sheet, put it in your file of facts, that was it. And there was kids that just couldn't bring the file of facts. They'd forget, I'm, a, I'm working on a building site or I've been to college and I didn't put it in my bag. They just got released. It was as brutal as that. Like, if you can't commit to doing that, and they get they get chances, you know, we were, we were only young, but lads that repeatedly couldn't keep up with something as simple as bring that file of facts to every single training session, and they left. Yeah. Like I say, at the time, we just used to think, why is he obsessed with these file of facts? Like, we don't really do anything with them. But it wasn't about what, what's in yeah, that yeah. book. It, it's, the, it's the mentality of when you go away, that's what you're thinking about it, and, and that was it. It was just intense, and... We didn't know any different, so it wasn't that we'd been at other clubs. And you know, I'm I'm 33 now, and I've I've played at three different clubs, and I know every club works different. That's all we knew, so we were in it. 
I've often, when I've met players from that Wigan culture, there's often a sense of identity around them. And I think that's an important phrase that there's two ways in which we tend to make decisions. Most people make decisions on cost versus benefit. You weigh up, is it worth it? What's it going to cost me? And then you'll decide whether you do it. Whereas the other way we make decisions is through an identity. So you walk into a situation, you say, who am I? What's the situation? What would somebody like me do in this situation? So there's almost a consistency. You, you act that way in every environment. So what it sounds to me that was happening was you were being inculcated into this kind of identity of this is what a Wigan player does, not a rugby player, a yeah. Wigan player. Yeah, exactly. And Sean had this this thing of, like, I, I want good people, not good players. So when we'd go and play away, and we'd go and play an academy game, and we'd... We'd have a, we'd have some food after in in the in the clubhouse or whatever, and Sean wouldn't let us give our plates. So there might be a lady collecting plates, and Sean said, "No, walk into that kitchen and go and put it in the sink." So it didn't matter where you were. Like the changing rooms were cleaner when we left than when we got there. Yeah. And Sean had this thing of, "Look, you you not you're not owed anything here. You know, look after yourself, clean everything up, and after every game, go and thank the kit man." go and thank the media guy, go and thank the guy who was recording it. He said, they don't have to be here, but they're helping you by doing it. Yeah. Something I still do today after every game. They were non-negotiables though. Yeah, yeah. If you didn't do it, you were out. You know, we weren't We weren't all of a sudden all becoming these sort of well-brought-up lads that wanted to do the right thing. If you didn't take your plate back, you might not play next week. So you had to. But what I love about that is that some of the lads that you were playing with were from real tough areas, weren't they? You know, had some quite bleak home stories, you know, coming from yeah. broken homes or coming from real abject poverty. And yet they were adopting these behaviours as much as somebody that maybe came from a, a more stable home yeah. life. And it changes people. I've got friends now that had they not had the three or four years at Wigan, yeah. they wouldn't be the same people now. I wouldn't be the same person. And, you know, I didn't have a, a real tough upbringing, I don't think. But I know other lads did. Yeah. They had every excuse to go and be someone that follows the path of, of people who had the same upbringing as them, and they're not. From from sort of 15 to 18 is a massive part of your life, I believe, for what sort of, what sort of man you become. Yeah. Because you're still a kid, really, but you can make your own choices. So when I see like academy players and things I think you you probably don't know the impact the decisions you make then are going to have on your career your life your family life I think it's a massive massive part and I, I was really lucky that I had my mum my dad my brothers with me helping me guiding me through that and not everyone has that luxury yeah my dad was a you know the the pushy parents my dad was the ultimate was it pushy parent yeah Go on, because pushy parents get a bad rep. We yeah. often assume that's that's not a healthy yeah. thing to do. Yeah, no, no. I mean it in the nicest possible yeah, yeah. way because I, I see people that you know don't make a success in a certain sport that they tried at, then they push the kids into it and try and live the dreams through yeah. them. My dad never played rugby. He he played basketball in school, and he was a Warrington Wolves fan. We went watching Warrington, that was it, and then we all started playing. There was one. I did a, a cross country race for school. In primary school, this yeah. was only 10, 11. And I, I won it for our primary school. And then they said, oh, you, you won it so you can go into like the, the Wigan Schools competition. And it was in uh, Standish High School. 
and at the back of back at this high school was fields you had to run this course don't know how far it was but it was you know cross country over across all these fields I wasn't that into cross country running but right I'm gonna go and do it and uh, I set off on this race and I was going for it and it wasn't I never had a dream of becoming a cross country runner yeah so I don't think I had the same passion I did and anyway, I was running running along and all the parents wait at the sort of the start and the finish all the parents wait there and I was about halfway around and my dad appeared on his mountain bike next to me. I was like, Dad, what are you doing? I'm running. He's like, you know, you're not going hard enough. I'll, I'll, I was going, Dad, you're embarrassing me. Like, go away. There's no there's no adults on this track, just my dad on his push bike. And he's going, I'll I'll stop when you catch that kid up over there. So, I'm, so I, then I'm getting angry and I'm just like, right, I'm going to, I need to catch some kids so my dad will stop. And, he, and I was going for it. And anyway, I ended up finishing third in this race out of whatever, 40 kids. And I came off and I was like, Dad, don't ever do that again. You know, you've embarrassed me. And he's like, you finished third though. See how good you can do when you... And I'm like, you've embarrassed me. You've, you've, yeah, yeah. You know, you've embarrassed me. My dad was like, you know, you finished third. Like, my dad wasn't bothered that he'd embarrassed me. He's like, you finished third in the Wigan schools. That's brilliant. Yeah. And then, you know, the, the next day I forget about it. I'm oh, yeah, I came third in this thing and I, I was happy with it. So like, that's how pushy my dad was. Wow, okay. So tell us then, when you're going into the environment, how, how easy did he find it to hand over control to the coaches in that environment? Very easy. Because he knew how pushy everyone was at right. Wigan. You know what I mean? It was almost like, well, I don't need to push him anymore. You know, he knew the environment we because my brother had done it two years yeah, before yeah. as well. So he had a good understanding of what it was like. So for my dad, it was probably relief of, I don't need to push him anymore because they've got five coaches doing exactly what, what he what he was doing as we were younger. Have you ever asked your dad what his intent was? Because like, getting on that mountain bike and following you around isn't an accident. That's not like a spur-of-the-moment decision. He must have had a clear idea of what his intention was. I've mentioned it to him. It probably, we didn't speak about it until about five years ago I said something to him. And he just went... Yeah, and you finished third, didn't you? He's <laughs> still saying so he doesn't, Do you know what I mean? He, there was no... He never never got into detail of why. I phoned him this summer. I took my, my son to a BMX track near our house. Bought him a new bike and he was going around this BMX track. And I was stood on the, the edge of the track. And when he was going down, I was saying, Rex, pedal faster when you go down. Yeah, yeah. And I said, like, lift your handlebars as you go over that bit. Do that. And I'm talking him around all the way, all the way. And then he got up, he came up next to me and he said, Dad, can you stop talking while I do this? And I looked across and I was like, these five dads are like having a cigarette, sat down chatting and the kids were just going around. And I phoned my dad, I said, I've turned into you. I've turned <laughs> into moment. you. That was it. I've, I've gone full circle. And, and what did he say? Good. He, he was yeah. like, did he finish third? <laughs> um, and I was like, yeah. And I think my dad's obviously competitive like I am yeah and, and wanted the best for us and my mum was very much the same my mum was wouldn't let us pack in at anything my mum was ultra competitive and so we, we had that that was what our home life was like and I'm, I'm one of three one of three brothers so yeah it, everything was a everything was a battle at home so now you're a parent of you've got four little ones yourself what aspects of their parenting style do you see you taking on and applying to your your children they're sort of not giving up on things i think the the difficulty with parenting is i my only parenting influence is my mum and dad and my wife was brought up different to i was 
her mum and she's one of three girls. Right. And a lot of times there's me and my wife are, are banging heads because I'm like, no, he needs to do this. And my wife's like, oh, well, if he doesn't really want to. I'm like, no, he does want to. He just can't be bothered today. Yeah. We have conflict, me and my wife, over that because we, you know, she only knows how her parents parented her. And I only know how mine parented me. So there's certain things that I wouldn't compromise on. Like um, what? Like giving up on things. So my son, my, my two eldest sons play rugby. M my oldest boy, Rex, is bang into it, loves it. Training, he, he, he wants to be at training and wants to play games at weekend. My son, Kane, that's five, he just wants to play at the weekend. So when he goes in training, he's sort of, he's picking up dirt off the floor and he's watching aeroplanes. And and I don't push him, I don't say when he's at training, right, go out, he's, he's five years old. Yeah. But I say, no, you're going. You wanted to play for this team. You got your kit with your name on the back and all that. So I said, you, you, you're going. So every Wednesday he goes to train and we're in the car and he's like, I'm, I don't want to go here, Dad. And can I just sit and watch with you? I said, no. I said, you can go on and you have to do the drills. And yeah, he doesn't fully commit and get involved in everything like his, like his brother does because they're in the same team. But I won't let him decide that he doesn't want to go. No chance. He's done it when the weather's bad. You know, we get a rainy day that it's raining. There's no way you're not going training because of the rain. In a million years, he's going. He's going on that field and he'll get wet. And then after, he'll, he'll dry off and, and he'll, he'll say, oh, yeah, I went training today. So there's commitment. There's no excuses that mm. you, that you yeah. don't compromise on. What other aspects do you, do you not compromise on as a parent? At home, me and my older brother, Joel, used to fight like cat and dog every single day. And my younger brother never, never said a crossword, never nothing. And... Um, no matter how much we fought and things, my mum made sure that we were we were close. We were never allowed to say, I hate you. If I said I hated him, I'd get the worst telling off of my life by saying I hate you. My yeah. mum was like, you never say that to your brother. This is your best friend forever. You can't, you can never say that. And I say it to my kids now, they'll, they'll be fighting, say, oh, I hate you. And I'd get them over and I, and because I'm close with both of my brothers and... I want my kids to be the same. And the only way I know I'm close is this is what I did. Yeah, yeah. You know, I'd never let them, they fight and they, of course they do, the, the, the young boys. And when they fight and they say that, I hate it. I absolutely hate the word hate. Yeah. Amongst them. You know, they say it about someone else they don't like or whatever, I don't care, but I'd never let them do it with each other. That's one thing that when I got brought up, I couldn't. Love I couldn't that. The it. idea of you always have each other's back. Yeah. So let's take that and replicate it because, again, looking from the outside, that Wigan team you went into looked like that was one of their key principles of you've always have each other's back. Yeah. How did you find that going in? Well, it was a luxury for me. I was a, a young lad going into a tough sport. Knowing people have got your back is brilliant. Wigan have a culture of you. You put your mate first and you've it's a real team first and mate first mentality, which... It's a DNA right through the club. I look after some young players now with, with with my agent, Andy Clark, some of the young kids. I just sort of said a, a while back, can I help out with some young lads, sort of give them advice if they yeah. need it and things. Touching on what we said before about not all kids have a great setup at home. Um, started doing that. Started watching some academy games. You can see the same traits in these academy kids 15 years after I was doing it. 
Right. So it's obviously a DNA at the club yeah, that yeah. it's it, they're a really close knit bunch and they provide success all the time. And we're gonna have a this they talk about this conveyor belt of young talent. That's not because all kids in Wigan are good at rugby. It's because of what they go through as as, as young players. So because lots of teams talk about, oh, we have a good team spirit and it's one in, all in and yeah. look after it. That often when it gets put under pressure, you see the exact opposite happen. So what kind of things were happening within that culture to reinforce that team mentality? Everyone was accountable to be put in team first. And if you didn't, you got pulled out. You know, you'd, you'd say, look at this. And it'd be really obvious if somebody wasn't part of it. Right. So you didn't, you'd never want to... St- be the one to not go team first and not fully commit because everybody else was, you know what I mean? You, you sort of just went with it. And yeah, I watched the Wigan reserves. They won the, the grand final a few weeks ago and and you could see it. They worked hard on the other team. They were playing Wakefield and, it, and the, the other team looked a little bit separated at times. Yeah. And Wigan didn't. They all did the same thing and you stick with it. And when you're in that process and you get a group and I've had it over the years, certain years, the team's been closer off the field and on the field yeah. and it gives everyone this confidence you're almost unbeatable you look at St Helens they've been the best team for the last few years they work harder than any other team and that's not because they're fitter or the faster or the stronger it's a mentality of we're going to do this for each other so for people listening to this Sam there's lots of people that go I'd love that in my team or in my business what kind of techniques or tips can you share with them to try and foster that it's the one percent things that other people won't notice do them best in rugby terms people score amazing tries and come up with big tackles but there's a hundred things that the average spectator wouldn't see someone working when the ball's away working an extra three meters to cover a little bit of space in case the ball comes back these are what we call one percent efforts they'd get highlighted after a game and be held in much higher regard than a try right, or a tackle. Okay. And we'd do a, a video review and we'd see the general things, like what, whatever went well or, or bad in the game. And at the end, it'd say, right, 1% efforts, and, we, and then we'd see. And it might be someone who doesn't get the accolades that they deserve and they, you know, they're a player that you need in a team, but they're not, the name's not in the paper, they're yeah, not yeah. getting paid a fortune, but they do the 1% as right. And that, amongst the group, was more valued. Sean Wayne says it all the time, anything you do is everything you do. And getting all those little things right makes it easy to score the fancy tries and come up with the big tackles and, and get wins because yeah. you've got that foundation of all these tiny little pieces together. If you haven't got all them together, you've got no stability in the group and everybody's trying to score tries and come up with big plays. But it's it, it can't be done. And it's no coincidence that what you're describing in a winning culture at Wigan, like Saracens have that, the shit that nobody sees is what they call the one percenters yeah. or it's all what we call the non-negotiables. It's all the, mm. it's all those small things. Yeah, and it's really easy to see it when it's not happening. If everyone in the group's doing it, as soon as someone doesn't do a one percenter, yeah. it sticks out and you're like, that is obviously... Whereas you could go to in, in other environments, and I've done it when I first moved to Catalan Dragons. There's not, there wasn't that mentality, and there was one percenters everywhere. Well, that was my next question then. So you've gone through this halcyon period when you first break into the Wigan team. You're successful. You're winning grand finals and challenge cups. Then you choose to go to New Zealand. Now, again, from the outside, going to the NRL, 
is seen as a step up in quality and profile. How was your experience then of having this Wigan identity and going to the other side of the world? What was your first experience of that like? First of all, I'd, I'd had this period. I was lucky in the time I, I made my debut in 2009. In 2010, we won a, a grand final. The club hadn't won a grand final for 13 years. I came in, you know, not even two years before winning a grand final. So the, the timing of me going in was really lucky for me because I won... A, you know, a major trophy in 2010, major trophy in 2011, 2012, we won uh, league leaders. Yeah. And then I had this burning desire to do something else. It was almost like, yeah, I've, I've won stuff. I'm at Wigan. I'm still 23. And I, I wanted to go and do something else. So what had changed in that period then from not compromising on this dream to achieving the dream and then deciding that there's something else you want to do? I think it was that I'd achieved it. I'd got in, I won trophies, I got the Man of Steel, the um, award for the best player in the league. And I'd sort of then started thinking, what else can I do now? That was the mentality. And was achieving your dreams everything you thought it would be? No. Tell us about that. What I realised from getting success and winning trophies uh, sounds a bit strange but when we won a trophy or won a big game I wasn't happy I was relieved right so I had this relief that we hadn't lost I had this relief that no one else had won so it was brilliant we won trophies but when I think and when, when I think of myself being happy I never think of rugby rugby doesn't make me happy when I win things I feel like it's a relief that oh, it was all worth it we got it which for me isn't happiness. It was it's relief, the yeah. relief of winning things. So how long after like hoisting the trophy aloft does that feeling wear off and and the relief floods in? The next day it's relief. You're happy. You win it. You go for a few beers. You have an amazing time with your friends. Yeah. But then you're just like, oh, I'm so glad we won it because no one else did and we didn't lose. It's quite quick and yeah. you go into an off season and it's only five weeks later you're training again for the next year and you forgot who won that one and you're on to the next. And if, if I'd gone into the Wigan team we hadn't won anything for five years I'd have been staying at Wigan. I'd have been staying there and I'm like we're going to go and win something. I want to be successful. I want to be in a successful Wigan team. But I think the fact that we I went in and we won trophies back to back and and I was getting individual accolades, it was almost like, right, what else can I do with it? As if, like, I hadn't I hadn't dreamt big enough. was right, probably okay. my feeling. Yeah, yeah. It sort of... Remember when I won the Man of Steel? It almost devalued the Man of Steel for me. Go on. Because I thought, well, if I've won it, like, it's not that big of a deal. Do you know what I mean? I'd see Man of Steel winners, Andy Farrell... Um, Paul School thought people like that when I was growing up and I was like they're heroes superstar rugby players but then when you actually get to that level of of being a, a, a good pro and, and you win an award like that it, it didn't if I, if the 13 year old me could have seen me winning Man City, like oh my I've turned into a superhero but the reality is you're not you're just another bloke who's been lucky enough to pick up an award if that makes sense yeah it does how many trophies in was it until you realised this isn't everything I thought it was going to be. Two. Uh, won the grand final in 2010. 
won the Challenge Cup in 2011. And then after that, that's when I started thinking, I want to do something else. And sport to Saracens Rugby Union. Now, Rugby Union had never been on my radar. Yeah. As a kid, as an adult, I just knew I wanted to do something else. I don't know, didn't know why, but I did. So in, in 2011, we won the Challenge Cup and uh, I went to the owner, Ian Lennigan, and said, oh, look, I want to wanna go and do something else. You know, he wasn't happy. And my agent, Andy, went to sport to Saracens. Andy Farrell and his team came up to Wigan, met him, and they said, yeah, we'd love to take you on. And then I had this goal then. I want to go and play rugby union. I want to play for England rugby union. Very quickly, like, switch my mentality. I want to go and do that. So during the meetings, it was, you know, they decided they want to take me and, and Joel. So, you know, we were two brothers playing well. Joel scored one of the best tries ever at Wembley that year. Then we've gone into the owner's office and said, oh, we both want to leave. You know, so you can imagine he was, he wasn't happy. Well, ag agreed Saracens had take us both. They were going to have to buy us out of our contracts. And Ian Lennigan said, well, I want a million, a million quid for the two of them. And Saracens said, no, we don't, we don't want to pay that. You know, what's the split? And they said, Sam's 750, Joel's 250. So they said, we'll take Joel. Joel was much better value for money. And Ian Lennigan said, look, I'll, Sam, I'll give you a, a good deal. So I said, okay. I went in, went into his office, signed a new five-year contract. It was on much more money. I thought that'll be, I'll change my mentality back, right, I'm going to stay where I'm going to win more things. I got this amazing contract and the 2012 season, I went into it thinking, right, I'm, this is it, you know, my mentality's back on rugby league, I want to do this. By the end of that season, I was like, why did I sign a five-year contract? The desire inside me was still to go and do something else. Um, and what was it you were chasing though? Just something different. What was it? Happiness? Was it the, the, like no. something different? Is like another challenge? It wasn't happiness. Like I was, I was happy. You know, when I say I wasn't, I don't see winning trophies making me really happy. I love my job. Absolutely love my job. Um, you know, being a being a sportsman is what I. That's all I ever wanted to do, and 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 I, and I still do. But I just wanted, I wanted to do something different. I didn't know, I don't know why, I still don't. I just think it was that I'd achieved these goals and then it was, well, let's go and, why don't you go and try and be successful at something else along the same lines, you know, yeah, in, yeah. in rugby. So that yeah, I signed a five-year contract. 12 months into it, I went back into the owner's office and said, I want to leave, I want to go to the NRL now. So he lost his head again. Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, he was, he was really mad, as you'd imagine. And he, he basically granted my wish. I went and told Sean Wayne first, the, the head coach. Because that, his was, that was a di more difficult. Sean cares about you. As a, like Sean's a mate as well as a, a coach at, at this time. Still is. And he said, look, I'm pissed off. You're one of my best players. I don't want you to leave. But for you, if that's what you want to do, I want you to do it. So he, wow. he put that before the fact that he was losing one of his best players. He said, I get it. He said, I fully understand it. I don't like it, but I understand it. And if you want to go and do it, go and do it. I'll, I'll. He actually said, I'll come and see the owner with you and explain it with you. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? 
Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So that consistence of message that you've seen as a 17-year-old boy of, I want good people, not just good players. Yeah. He's backing that up in yeah. his own... Yeah, yeah. It was more interested in the f in the chance of me doing something I really wanted to do. Yeah. Than his own team being slightly weaker by losing a player. What's your perception on that? So like you hear lots of managers talk a good game, but mm. you're actually testing that out in quite in you know, in, in quite a brutal fashion. I wasn't surprised that he came out with that because, you know, as kids although it was brutal what we were going through, he, he still cared for you and, and he wanted he wanted lads to to do well in life, and he'd, he'd always talk to us about you know when you when you're earning a bit of money, don't be going buying your flash cars and doing this, set yourself up, and and he did want people to to enjoy what they do and but do whatever they want to. Yeah, he didn't push people that couldn't handle being pushed. You know, so yeah. I think that, that was a part of it. And and when when Sean said, "Look, I agree that you should go and do it," it was what I expected, really. Tell us then about how you made the decision of that next challenge because you're searching for something really specific now. You've decided yeah. the NRL in general is where you're going. How yeah. did you decide that the Warriors in New Zealand were were the right fit for you? Well, I spoke to a few different clubs and then speaking with the Warriors, they had a bit of a an underdog mentality. You know, they'd only been to one final and that appealed to me. You know, I got offers from... Because of your own underdog story, yeah, do you think? Yeah, And I thought, I want to go there and make a difference. I want to go and, go and you know, be part of a successful team there for the first time. And I think it was because I was an underdog for so long that appealed to me. The fact that I could go to somewhere that had potential for success but didn't actually have anything to show for it. And, and money was a factor. You know, yeah. when, I, when I went, you know, I was going earning nearly double my salary um, not just at the Warriors but at different clubs because they've got a much bigger salary cap obviously our sports salary cap you can only spend a certain amount on your full squad and then the Warriors just seemed like a good fit I just like the the feeling of the club you know I spoke to some people there Thomas Luluai a good friend of mine had been there as a kid he'd gone back 12 months before so the fact that I could go there and and be you know in the same group as someone that me and Tommy won trophies together these trophies that had sort of put me off playing at Wigan yeah. not put me off but they'd, they'd made me think otherwise you know I'd, I'd been with Tommy through that um, and Thomas Lulawai is the best coach in rugby league and he's not even a coach yet so I knew that gave me a little bit of security I could go there and, and be with someone you know although I'm 12,000 miles from home I'm going to be playing alongside a guy that I've played 200 games with before 
So when you get in there, you've, you've got this Wigan identity, you're ultra competitive, It's you've got each other's back, you do the one percenters. What do you experience? Um, yeah, it wasn't like that. So the club have got loads of money. So they'd have a altitude chamber in the gym they'd paid half a million pound for they had the amazing facilities and they had they had everything that they needed but we didn't play like um, like a real tight group but there was things off the field so in in New Zealand there's a lot of Polynesian players in the group and constantly it was players are overweight you know they're, they're not fit enough at Wigan, we got our breakfast made for us every day. We got our lunch made for us every day. If you were single, they'd make your food up for the night to take home when you're in the first team. You did no planning. Everything was given to you. At the Warriors, there was none of that. So in the morning, lads wouldn't eat anything. You get a break at lunch. There'd be lads sneaking to McDonald's and then coming back into this amazing gym like it had worked. And it couldn't. You know, I'd just got to the club and the coach said, look, you know, what do you think? could change and you know I was, I was still young I was 23 24 when I went but he said look you've known that this club's won anything you've won stuff um, there was only Tommy I think that had and I said you need to you can't tell the players they're all overweight when they're not they're not educated enough on what they should be eating they're right. going to McDonald's at lunch they were expecting to be professionals at training and at home but they didn't know how to be a lot of players and this is first team yeah, yeah. in the NRL and it was way below the standard I'd had it in the academy at Wigan. You've almost blindsided me on that, Sam, that I was expecting that the coach would have said, what do you think? And the the lazy answer is, it's not professional, but what you've gone in and gone is, you've not educated people to be professional. Yeah. You know, like when people say, oh, yeah. we have no trust in the team. Well, let's define what trust is and then practice it. It's You almost need to give people the tools to then let them learn how because to do it. Because it was an ultra-professional setup. They had loads of staff, amazing offices, the best gym, training facilities, everything was perfect. They had some of the best athletes, the biggest, strongest, most skillful players. But it was only little things like, if, it, if they're going eating a load of rubbish at lunch, they're not going to come and train well in the afternoon. Yeah, yeah. And then you can't train on the field. There was players, Conrad Hurrell, who's now at, at St. Helens, a nightmare. People like him, they needed teaching, this is what you do. And they weren't, they were just fly over from Tonga, young kid, could hardly speak English. Look how big this gym is, brilliant, train hard. And they go home and just live like the rest of the friends that, that weren't athletes. And they didn't have that discipline and that thought of when I leave this training ground, I'm not, I can't switch off. I've still got to think about it. They did, they switched off and went and played there. And, you know, my dream was go there and we'll be the first team to, to go on and win a trophy. Didn't happen at all we finished 7th and 8th in the two seasons that I was there so what happened there then because this is a really interesting topic for me of that it's easy to go into a culture and often find yourself being dragged down to a lower standard a set of standards it's harder to go in and maintain your own standards and try and drag everyone else along with you what did you experience? Well, I wasn't the only one that knew about these standards or wanted these standards. There yeah. was there was players in the group. You know, I, I wasn't the the one professional. It certainly wasn't that. You had people like Thomas Luloi, Simon Mannering, um, Sean Johnson, really, really good players and ultra professional. 
but the full group wasn't at that level. So it, it wasn't, you know, I wasn't a pioneer for a, for a change and the change didn't happen while I was there anyway. Changed a bit, uh, I think, and I'd hope, but not nowhere near to the to where we needed to be. There's echoes in your answer of when we interviewed Phil Neville and he spoke about his experience of going from the high standards of Manchester United to to when he moved to Everton and he was getting in the gym early doing extras and doing prep and he found himself being the only one and he couldn't believe it after a while and then gradually he said four or five lads yeah. came in with them yeah. and he felt he moved the dial a little bit towards where he'd experienced. How did you avoid not being dragged down to the lower standard? So, you know, where you could have made yeah. the excuse, I've won a few trophies, I'm here in New Zealand, I'm having a good time. Because there was other people in the group doing it. So every day off, I'd go in. At Wigan, we used to get given a day off, and he'd say, I'll expect you all in tomorrow. You're off. <laughs> You'd have a day off. Yeah. But he'd expect you all in at some point. You could go in any time of the day in the gym, but you'd have to go and do foam rolling, an ice bath, get a massage, do some extra weights, whatever. You work it out yourself. And no one ever said, no, I'm going to go shopping for the day. Yeah. If you did want to go shopping there, you get up and you go in at seven o'clock, jump in an ice bath for two minutes, make sure you've been seen and you've done a little bit, right, okay, and go on. So you, you still had to go and do it. And at the Warriors, there was, play, there was players that wanted to be professional as well, that wanted to, and did follow. And, and Thomas Luluai, like I say, you know, Thomas has been one of my the biggest teachers for me in rugby over the years. He'd phone me, should we go in? It'd be a day off, should we go in? Yeah, I'll go in. And it felt normal for me. I feel like if I'd have gone away from it and sort of changed what I was doing, I wouldn't have been happy with myself. Yeah. You know what I mean? I knew the right thing to do. I didn't didn't lose didn't lose track of that. Well, let's go back to that feeling then. So you, this feeling that we're going to vaccinate, this isn't everything I thought it would be. Did you find anything different in New Zealand? One of the reasons for going there was I wanted to away from the field, see something else. You know, I wanted to live somewhere else, which I loved. Auckland's an amazing city. You know, I loved the time living there. You know, it was difficult at rugby. I'd come from Wigan where we were the best team. We won trophies. I was a good player. I went to a team that wasn't the best team. I didn't play my best rugby while I was there. We didn't win anything. So it was it was, it was was tougher on the field. But, you know, the, the balance of my life at home as well, I was like... I loved living in a completely different place, completely different culture. You know, I look I look back on my time there as so glad I did it. I loved it. Wasn't the most successful rugby years, but I grew up a lot. You know, living twelve thousand miles from from your friends and family. So I, I look on it, you know, with massive gratitude that I had those two years. There's a few English players that have gone out there. Like you go back to somebody like Adrian Morley yeah. and Gareth Ellis and Sam Burgess, but it. It's not a flood of players that tend to no. go from Super League to the NRL. So I really admire the fact that you've done that, that you've had the courage to break out of your Wigan home base and, and do it. When you look back now, what did you gain from that two years that you then brought back when you came to the UK? Probably a different perspective. I was more appreciative of what I'd had before. Right. I thought the Wigan setup was the norm. And it wasn't. I think I learned a lot. I adapted how I played because, again, I was in a winning team. So for me, as a fullback in a team that breaks teams down really easy, it wasn't. I didn't feel like I had to work that hard. 
compared to when I went to New Zealand, I, would, I worked harder than I'd ever worked at Wigan and things didn't come off. I definitely changed and matured as a player, knowing that, you know, hard work alone isn't isn't enough. In my position, other players have got to play well for me to play well. So I had to sort of go reverse, like, how can I make other people play well? Okay. What can I do for them? Whereas at Wigan, it was, you go and set it up for me, pass it to me at the back. I'd put a nice play on or score a try. Where I'd sort of change my mentality of, right, well, what I'll do is, I'll do this to make his job easier. And in turn, I'll get the benefit. So it changed being a player that way. Again, there's like real echoes out of it. If you've ever seen that Last Dance documentary, the Michael Jordan one, yeah. and that's a really good illustration of when he talks about that idea that he only became a great player when he learned to be a team player. Is that what you yeah. were experiencing? Yeah, I just I just realised it was tougher than I thought and I had to change what I was doing. I couldn't just wait to get the ball. I couldn't just wait for us to be dominant in games because we weren't. We weren't. We weren't the best side, so... I had to go and try and do things. I was probably at fault of trying too hard sometimes when I was the I was caught out of position and and looking back at games I'd I'd be like, Why am I doing that? But it was through effort. I was wasn't I was doing things wrong because I didn't know what I was doing. Yeah. The fact that I was trying to do other things as well as my own job. And how and, and how many parallels can you spot between that experience of when you're not being given a contract as a young lad at Wigan and mm. Sean Wayne's got that lad running over here on the try line to being in New Zealand as one of the stars of the competition, trying things and it not coming off. How many lessons did you take from those early Wigan years and apply in New Zealand? Probably the habits of just keep going, you know, when talk about not being able to tackle big lads, I ended up tackling them, you know, and and that was through trying, 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 and that was it. And that's all I was doing when I was, when I was in New Zealand. I was trying my second year I had a had my first significant injury which you know would really derailed what I could do. But up until that point, yeah, I was putting in more effort than I'd ever put in, but the rewards just weren't there. So tell us about your decision then to leave New Zealand. It was a well timed call from Chris Radlinski, the, the CEO at Wigan. So I'd signed three years in New Zealand and then in twenty fifteen 21st of March, I um, snapped the PCL ligament in my knee and I was pretty down, my first injury. And Chris Radlinski phoned me. He said, oh, look, there's a, there's a new rule coming in Super League. It's the marquee signing, which means, you know, you can have two players on any team that you can pay them what you want and they're not part of the salary cap, so you can earn a bit more money. You can have two players that are on a bit more. Yeah. He phoned me and he said, you know, we've got a contract we want to offer you cut your stay short in New Zealand you know I had a long think about it and things weren't going as well as I could and then he, uh, he called me back and said oh, if you don't take the offer we're going to offer it to Sam Burgess and I thought it's too good of an opportunity to miss I want to go back to Wigan I want to go and win trophies again I can go and earn you know similar money to what I'm on again and I thought I know I'll go back there and, and get some some good care because it I've been injured at Wigan and they, they throw everything at you. We're going to get this better. We're going to do this to give you the change to the best specialists and all that. And I didn't feel like that's what I had there because, again, the, the setup wasn't the same. The physio would say, yeah, oh, a bit of rest. So I was almost feeling a little bit undervalued. And then while we were thinking about that, my wife fell pregnant, my girlfriend at the time. And that was it. My brother had kids, uh, Charlotte's sister had kids. And we said, look, we've got a chance, go back. 
back to what we're what we're used to and, and that's what we did we decided then so I went to New Zealand Warriors and just said look I've been offered this I'm going to leave a, a leave a year early which they they basically said we can't grant it unless we sign another player which was Roger Tuivasa Shek who was at Sydney Roosters they said we'll only grant you a release if he comes to us and I just had a bit of a waiting game to see if this this player had signed which which he did and that was confirmed I was I was going back then after two years rather than three. So it sounds there that it was about wanting to go somewhere where you had a sense of belonging, yeah. with that sort of family, that kinship. Did you have any concerns though about your happiness, the contentment of going back? So I, I get that you're going back to a family unit in many ways or a place where you're familiar, but did you have the concerns of um, it's still not going to make me satisfied? No, I'd sort of changed my mentality. I'm going to go back to Wigan and I'm going to win more trophies. Right. I had that hunger again. I'd been and done something else and I feel yeah. like that satisfied that itch. Okay. And it was like, right, I'm going to go to Wigan. I'm going to go and win some trophies. And I've got this fire again. When I went back, that was that was what I wanted to do. And I went back to Wigan and, you know, we, we won trophies and that, you know, I got what. And what was the difference between Sam Tompkins version one and version two that turns back up after his two year? I was a bit slower. <laughs> I'd had this knee injury uh, a lot more mature as a bloke and as a player you know I'd, I'd learned over there that I had to be be more of a leader amongst the group so I feel like when I came back I had a lot a lot stronger vision of how to how to lead a group tell us how you do that so I'd had people like Sean O'Loughlin Thomas Lulawai Mickey McClure and players that they just knew how to lead and then I'd sort of learnt off them when I went to New Zealand there wasn't so many of those people so I sort of had to step up and, and be the one to say no, that needs to change I yeah. say look we need to do it this way and take a bit of ownership of the group upon myself so I had, a, I had a much better understanding of that once I'd come back from New Zealand where I'd had to sort of almost got pushed to right well th there isn't as many leaders as I am one yeah. so I'd almost got forced into it so when I came back I was, I was better adapt Give us examples of where you've come in and maybe you've challenged perceptions of, oh, here's Sam again, the local lad, we know him. How you've come in and set the standard or challenged? Um, probably relationships with coaches. You know, coaches don't know everything. And the best coaches are, are open to ideas. And I think when I was a bit younger, if, if a coach said, we're going to play this way, I'd go, yeah, okay, we'll play that way. Well, now I was confident enough to say, well, what about if we do this? You know, if we change this and Sean Wayne was coach and that's one of Sean's biggest assets. Sean says, you know more about it than me. How should we do this play? You know, if it's an attacking play with fullbacks and wingers, then, you know, I know more. I had the confidence then to go, look, I think we should do this, which I probably didn't have earlier on. You've also become a leader with Catalans where you went to after that second spell at Wigan and then also with England. So... How would people now describe you as a leader? So how do you think you're perceived by the rest of the group? People know that I give 100% because people tell me, you know, I don't I don't know much else about what they'd, what they'd think. You know, I compete, I try hard at everything. I can put my hand on my heart and, and say that I, I, give, I give everything when I'm playing, which is what I saw in other players above me that I thought, you know, that's, that's a non-negotiable. That's what Sean O'Loughlin's so good at. Sean O'Loughlin, he'll be a, a legend of, of the game and he led by example. And I remember when, when Lockers was, was captain at Wigan, 
he got loads of stick because he didn't get the lads behind the posts and like shouting people's faces and he wasn't that big aggressive shouting leader they'd had Andy Farrell before at Wigan that that's what he was and then Lockers took over and, it, and that wasn't his that's not how he does it he leads by example when he speaks in a room it holds some weight he doesn't say anything that doesn't need saying you know I'd seen that and, and Lockers in 2013 we went on to, to win the double at Wigan and Lockers had an injury Challenge Cup semi-final came along no it's not good enough the final came and he played the fact that he was in the group made everyone feel better the fact that he was only at about 50% didn't matter which I think so. you know it's an unbelievable talent to have to change a group by not even being your best it didn't the semi-final it was should Lockers play and I remember being in the meeting going don't play him because we'll, if we get through this semi-final he'd have been injured again you know the injury he had it was going to reoccur and we didn't want to go to a final without him wow. we didn't want to go to, we'd rather risk losing the semi without him than him play the semi get us through because then if we went to a final without Sean Lockley in the team we'd have felt terrible and what was it that Sean offered? Locker's never had a bad game he was always his, his standard was much higher than the vast majority of people He'd go between an eight and a ten every week. And a lot of these things are what I said before about the one percenters. The amount of things that he'd clean up without even, it wouldn't get written in the paper or a commentator would never mention it. But he did all them. So you've now come into this Wigan team where you've got Sean leading it. You've got other cultural architects, guys that are just leading it for you, running the culture. You've come and done that. You're successful again. You achieved the ambitions. Was it different second time around winning these trophies than when you'd experienced yeah. it first? You yeah. weren't, were you feeling relief or was it something yeah. different? Still, re still relief, but probably appreciated the journey to it a little bit more. Okay. Because I'd, I'd then been injured. I'd, I'd, I did my knee in New Zealand, broke my foot when I came back to Wigan. The sort of the path to get another Super League ring was much, much more difficult, yeah. which made it more satisfying when I got it. And the fact that I, I won my last trophy for Wigan was actually my last game for Wigan. So it it, it meant more because I wasn't sure. It was my last game. Yeah. At Wigan, I won it in 2010, first time when I was like, I've got three more years here. Like, we'll probably win it another few times. You know, I had that sort of that buffer of, it's not make or break, where when I won it in 2018, it was make or break. That was my last time yeah. ever in a Wigan jersey as a kid that joined the scholarship at 12 years old 1992 you know in 2018 I've got one game to win a trophy and you know luckily we, we did it almost sounds to me then Sam that it was the struggle that was the real yeah. pleasure that I, and, and, that, yeah. and that was the cherry on the top but it was a struggle well, it probably so you know I think about it <laughs> I went through struggles as a kid in the academy and not being good enough and eventually getting in and then I got a trophy and then it was, you know, probably a little bit content. You know, it was again a struggle. I hurt my knee, I broke my foot, got back in the team, didn't feel right for a bit, got back, got playing really well and won it. So the, the paths are probably not too yeah. dissimilar. Yeah. yeah, I can see it. It's like that old saying, isn't it? What comes easy doesn't last, but yeah. what lasts doesn't come easy. I've never thought of it like that, but yeah, there probably is some, some parallels there. But then let's get on to the bit that intrigues me most, because I think this is the bit where when I meet you and we chat now, where I'm sensing a more content 
Sam Tompkins, somebody that speaks to place in his life where there's a calmness to you, there's a stillness around it. When you've gone with Charlotte, you've got two young boys, you've decided to leave Wigan again and go to the south of France. Yeah. That's quite a brave move. When I lived in New Zealand, we, we liked that we lived away. And what brought us back to home was we had this change of we we're having a baby. I could get good salary again, more than I've been on before. And there was advantages to it. Then back at Wigan, we had two kids by then. And, you know, it's like when you have your first kid, you've no idea what you're doing. You want to be around people. When yeah. you've had a couple, it's like everyone's making it up. No one knows what to do when you have a kid. <laughs> My wife was quite a, a big influence on the fact that she wanted to go and live away again, go and try something new. And and I didn't. I, I knew then in 2018, I was 29 years old. Wigan offered me a contract to stay. Marquis signing for four years. I didn't expect that contract offer. I'd already spoke to Catalan Dragons and they'd said, look, you can you can come here, this is this is the money. I was expecting Wigan to offer me a deal, but I didn't think it'd be that good. Right. And Ian Lennigan said, I'm gonna give you an offer. It's you know, it's not we're not negotiating on it, this is it, take it or leave it. And I saw it and I was like, that's that's way better than I thought. That was I thought that was more than what I was worth at the time. Right. As a 29-year-old, I was a little bit shocked. And then I remember phoning my dad, actually, in the car, and I said, oh, this is the offer I've got. And my dad just went, oh, no-brainer. I was like, what? He said, no-brainer, sign at Wigan. That's brilliant. But I'd already had all these thoughts of, oh, I'll go and, it's my last chance to go and do something else. Although I hadn't won a trophy at Wigan, I thought it was my last chance then at 29. And I wouldn't have gone to any other team in Super League apart from Catalan. If I'd left Wigan and gone to Warrington, it's a place in the northwest, yeah. rugby town, and Catalan is the only team that have got some some difference, and it's massive difference. You're living in the south of France, flying over for your games and, and things like that. So that that then appealed to me again. That that thought of just going and try something different, and 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 that was it. And my wife was really keen on it, and it wasn't an easy decision because. I knew what I had. I had it good at Wigan. Yeah. And and the contract was good and I was happy. But again, that little devil on my shoulder was like, let's do something different again. And and, and that's what I did. See, because lots of people can talk about taking a risk and things like that, but it's like that old saying that a principle is only a principle when it costs you money. And yeah. that's what it's done. You've, yeah. you've talked about taking a risk or doing something different when actually you've had a really... Hmm comfortable alternative staring yeah. you in the face Ian Lennigan said come and see me on Wednesday and tell me if you're staying or not and um, when I went and met him I said look Ian I'm going to I'm going to sign for Catalan and he said so it's not about money this is it and I said no and he said well I'm happy then because right. he knew I was going for I wasn't just trying to get an extra few euros or pounds because he'd offered me a brilliant deal. He said, it's not about money, it's about you doing something different, isn't it? I said, yeah, and we'd been here <laughs> previously when I wanted to go and do something different, so he knew he knew me, and he said, yeah, that's absolutely fine, shook my hand, there was no bad words, you know, finished yeah. at Wigan on a really positive note, and, and Wigan's a good club in the terms of when you've played at Wigan, you're still a Wigan player forever. Like in the gym, Wigan have got the best the best setup in Super League by far. They've got this amazing gym. 
and we've been training there with England this week and there's a there's a board on the wall and on a Wednesday morning they run a gym class like a CrossFit gym circuit thing any player that's ever played for Wigan can go in there and train it's all free it's all run and all you have to do is sign the board it just says X Warriors and you sign it and put your heritage number on it wow and that's special and that means you're part of that forever and we had a mid-season international in England so I stayed over after our game and I just said to Rads can I just use the field at, at your training ground I just want to do some running he said yeah come in whenever you want and I said well when are the lads training he said that doesn't matter so I ended up texting uh, one of the lads like when are you training I don't want to come and train while you yeah. are you know, I'm, I'm in an opposition team um, anyway I worked out a time and I said to Rads I'm going to come on Wednesday 10 o'clock so okay I walked into the facility at Wigan a big screen TV on reception Wigan Warriors welcomes warrior number 1006 Sam Tompkins I was like they don't need to I'm just going running on the field at the back but the fact that they want you to know that you're still a part of everything that's the one percent yeah exactly and, and and I went in and I was a little bit humbled a bit like almost embarrassed when I went in the lady on reception oh Sam you know Chris said you were coming in do you need anything the changing rooms are open and, and showed me around and I play for another team I'm trying to beat Wigan yeah do you know what I mean yeah yeah but what comes before the fact that I play for another team and that I want to beat Wigan and is the fact that I played there before and I'm a Wigan player and that's what you get so that's that cost versus benefit versus identity decision making yeah. isn't it there yeah it doesn't matter what it costs us, the idea that you're one of us is yeah. something that's more important. And, and Wigan do that better than anybody else. I could go into Wigan, I could phone him for tickets to a game or I need to train and, and I know that I'd I'd be welcomed with open arms, no matter what I did, who I played for, if I was retired, it wouldn't matter. Something really powerful about that sense of belonging. Mm. So let's take that then. Your willingness to do something different I think he's going to be a really interesting theme of this Rugby League World Cup that's just about to come up because to do something different, you've got to do something you've never done before for the country to beat Australia or New Zealand, the big rivals. We're going to have to do something we've never done before. You're leading that. Yeah. Tell us about your mentality as you go into this tournament then. First of all, it'll be my last World Cup, 33 now, and and the World Cup is the, the... biggest and best trophy there is I've played internationals a lot of internationals before and been really lucky to do that and I've won series against New Zealand but the World Cup we've we've never we've not won in 50 odd years so my personal mentality is it's my last crack at this and the fact that I'm captain of the of the group puts a little bit more pressure on on me I think because I want to be that best leader yeah. You know, I've I've experienced the best leaders. I'd want to be that player and that leader. I think as a group, I believe we're we're hungrier than any nation. We're on home soil. We're gonna have the best coverage ever of a rugby league World Cup. We're playing at amazing stadiums. We've got a new setup in the coaching staff, the backroom staff's all new. Yeah. You know, what what a chance we've got. I think we don't want to let it go past and not not grab it with both hands and that's that's my mentality. There's a bit in that that really intrigues me. So you've spoken about, you know, that first time at Wigan, you went out on a high. That second time you came back, your very last game in a Wigan jersey is winning a grand final. And you made the comment that I actually love that, the do or die nature of it, yeah. of 
the pressure's on and you walk towards it. You don't shy away from it. So all the factors that you've spoken about for this tournament, that you're the leader, you're on home soil, this is going to be your last World Cup. Tell us about how you process pressure in that situation then in order to thrive. I see it as more opportunity than than pressure. You've got one last chance and but what what an opportunity. You know, don't necessarily see it as a lot of pressure on you, you should win it. Because we're not we're not the favourites to win it anyway. I just see it as a massive carrot dangling. Let's go and do everything we can to get it. Although we're under pressure because we're on home soil and things like that. If we're ever gonna win a World Cup, why would it not be now? I think we've got as good of a squad as we've ever had. You know, this could be it. And what kind of messages are you giving the group to have that sense of belonging that you described really powerfully, you experienced at Wigan, or to give them that sense of, let's not just talk a good game about we've got each other's backs. You've experienced what it's like to be in a team where all those one percenters mm. add up. Well, I think that builds and it'll build through the competition. Like we, We've only just gone into camp a yeah. few days ago. So that, that builds once you play together. But one thing I did as soon as we came in camp, we went training on the field. Now, every rugby team runs similar shapes with the ball. I went on the field and it was obvious that we were all going, what's it called with England again? Is it called this? And we were calling club stuff, right. um, which which stuck out to me. That connection isn't fully there. And it wouldn't be. You've, you've just been at your club for 12 months. So I said after the first session... I said today, I said to the coach, we need a printout of all the names of all the players that we've got. Everyone take it home, take it to bed tonight in the hotel. And tomorrow, nobody calls anything from the club. Everyone calls the England calls, uh, which I, I saw as a, as a real, not just important for the way that we play, for communication, but for the fact that you're switching into England mode here. You're not playing for... Warrington, Castleford, Leeds, you're playing for England. Yeah. So forget whatever you've done for however long, the last season's gone. This is England now and this is this is how we're gonna play and we're, we're gonna create our own identity in this competition and we're full and we're fully in. And like I say, we've we've only been in camp a few days, so I, I believe that'll grow over the next few weeks. And what are the kind of things that you think you can do as a leader to bring people from a variety of different teams? together and create that sense of I think make comradeship. Em, make everyone accountable for the one percents that we spoke about. Make sure everyone's got the same holds everything in the same value. From squad number one to twenty four. We're all working to the same goal. It's obvious we all want to win. But how we do it, we all need to be on the same page. You don't want anyone thinking this is the way to do it and someone else saying, Well I think it's this way. Yeah. We need to get on the same page and all go at it with this with the same mentality and the same vision love that it reminds me of when we interviewed Gareth Southgate he spoke about his most important selection decision was the third choice goalkeeper because he said that's a guy that's unlikely to play any game but it's a guy that's going to have to stay behind and do the extras mm -hmm. and do all yeah. the hard yards without any of the glory and yeah. if you've got the right person there you know you pretty much got the right yeah. culture right the way through the squad it's an important factor I think when you've everybody in the group is used to being one of the best players at club. You know what I mean? We've got 24 players that are all starting players at the club. There's going to be seven players every week that aren't picked, which is 
a completely alien thing to a lot of players, as it would be for me. And Steve McNamara, that my coach at Catalan Dragons, he spoke to me about when he was the England coach for for five years, and sometimes he'd pick, he worked out his best seventeen players, and then the players outside of that weren't necessarily the best players. Right, they were the ones that would work as a group. So sometimes he'd he'd pick a squad and he'd get hammered for not picking a certain player. Yeah. And it's only in having conversation with Steve was like, that player wasn't going to be in my 17. And I knew if he wasn't, that would then cause a friction in the group. Although he might have been more, more talented than guys in front of him in the squad, he wasn't good for the group and that's team first. Yeah. So if a player got injured, you bring in a player that might not have been as good as a certain player that got left out, but it worked for the group. And it was only when Steve sort of explained that to me, I was like, oh yeah, because I was the same. He'd leave a player out and I was like, surely he's one of our best 24. But yeah, he might have been number 19. But for that role, he's not the man. He needs to be a number six, a number five, whatever it is. He needs to be a starter. He isn't a squad player. It reminds me of that great story that Jack Charlson tells that when he got picked to play for England in in like nineteen sixty five before the World Cup and he went to Alf Ramsey and said, What have you picked me for? Yeah. There's better players. <laughs> and Alf Ramsey had said, I don't pick the best players, I pick the right players. Yeah. Which, it, which it's, is a bit of a, it's a bit of a insult, but I know you're no good, but you're in. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, and in, in team sport that's what it is and the the tightness of a group is massive. Yeah. You can you sense it and you momentum in sport is massive and you feel momentum and the confidence you get from being tight as a group is huge and when you're in a group and you feel it you're almost invincible you're like look how tight we are we know we can win it you get this huge confidence so if Sean was to invite you to speak to the squad and say you're the guy that knows how to win what would your top three tips be to this England team as you go into the World Cup final that is going to make the difference between Winning and nearly winning. It'd be when we're away from this group, don't forget our goal, first of all. You know, we, we only break camp for two days a week. I'd say we've got six weeks. That's all it is. It's not a massive sacrifice in them two days, do the right things. I'd also said, do everything you do at club level. So forget the mate next to you isn't the guy that you've played 50 games with. Treat that player the same as you do at club level because that's the only way it works. I spoke to the players mid-season about this. The best teams, they work really hard for each other and that, that's built up over trust over a long time of training together and playing together and being in tough situations together. Yeah, But you don't get the luxury of that playing international you might never play with the guy or played two or three games with him forget that do what you do at club level work as hard for him as you would for one of your players in your club and I'd say believe believe we can do it we're not the favourites to win this competition and, and I've said in the in the media you know I think we can go and win it and you'll see straight away well, you can't win it you've not got the best squad you know Australia Samoa and all this I don't care I know what we've got I don't care what Australia, New Zealand bring, bring, bring your best. We've got a really strong group. So I don't care who we're playing. I believe, genuinely believe that we can go and win it. 
Brilliant. We always wrap up with some uh, quick fire questions. So what are the three non-negotiables that you and everyone around you has to buy into? I'd say be on time, put team first and commit 100%. Don't dip your toe in. What advice would you give to a teenage Sam just starting out? Believe in yourself and all these players around you that you think are really good, they're not as good as you think. Back yourself a little bit more and, you know, the, the players around you, I probably thought were, were way above me. They weren't actually that far above. If you could go back to one moment of your life, what would it be and why? It would be when, I'd, when I got my academy contract. I was officially an academy player. I was getting paid to play rugby. I didn't need to do anything else. You know, that was goal number one achieved, something that I've wanted for since I can remember. You know, being a five-year-old boy, I want to be a rugby player. And that felt like when I got my first contract, I was a paid rugby player. And, and that was, yeah, that was a big moment. How important is legacy to you? Not that important, really. Everyone's idea of, of legacy is probably a little bit different. But for me, it's 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 not something I've I've ever given any any thought to at all, if I'm honest. And finally, what's your one golden rule for a high-performance life? Be willing to adapt and change. You know, you, you you can't be, you can't stay the same way in in anything. There's going to be things, curveballs, and and things out of your control that are going to come at you. So be prepared to be flexible and and change what you do. Wow, brilliant message, Sam. It's been a real privilege. So thank you for being part of the, the High Performance Podcast. Thanks a lot. Well, what a fantastic interview. So it's time to do our final wrap of this Rugby League mini-series to celebrate the World Cup that's taking place at the moment. Now, like the other episodes, I've not got my wingman next to me, Jake, so it's a slightly different wrap than we normally do on the podcast. But there are a few observations from listening to Sam that I think it's worth us reflecting on. The first one is just his origin story itself, that success doesn't happen in straight lines. And I think Sam's a really great example of that. There's that old story about the bamboo that takes five years to grow, but for the first four years, nothing ever seems to be happening on the surface. But all the stuff is going on underneath. It's in the fifth year that the bamboo suddenly starts to sprout. And I can't help but thinking of that story when Sam told us that story about how for years he was going along to Wigan and paying to play. He was working as a greenkeeper to try and uh, fund his way until eventually all that hard work and the discipline and commitment he was investing started to eventually sprout and blossom. And I think sometimes it's that work in the shadows for all of us that is worth remembering where the real value lies not getting caught up in waiting to see the outcome, but actually looking at the income that we're putting into it, the small steps, the processes that will eventually get us to where we want to go. The second thing that I think Sam really illustrated powerfully for us was the story he told us about when he achieved his dreams. He reached the summit of his ambitions, winning grand finals, getting those big moves over to New Zealand and then eventually Catalans. And yet understanding that that wasn't what satisfied him. He had that great line that I think it's worth us all remembering, that what comes easy doesn't last, but what lasts doesn't come easy. 
And it's about enjoying the struggle, the journey, the process of becoming the person that we're meant to be that is actually where the value lies, rather than being fixated on an end destination. And then the final bit that really lit me up was Sam talking about the Wigan culture that he went into. I love the story of Sean Wayne's Filofaxes, because the Filofaxes weren't important, but it was the idea of being accountable and being prepared and constantly being ready that really was. But it was that last story that Sam told about even when he was at Catalan, being welcomed back into that Wigan culture to come and do some extra training on its own. And I think it's a really powerful message for us to understand there that it's about how you treat people when there's nothing in it for you. The idea of treating the people that can do nothing for you is often a great indicator of your character. It's a great sign of the kind of characters that Wigan were developing. There was so much rich stuff in that conversation with Sam that I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. But now it's time for us to end this little mini-series of Rugby League podcast that we've done. And I want to just finish by issuing some real thanks to the team behind us that enabled us to record these uh, interviews. I'd like to thank Tom Griffin. I'd like to thank Will O'Connor for their brilliant support on the day. I'd like to thank Jake and Hannah and Gemma, Eve, Callum, Finn and the rest of the high performance team for their help and support in getting these podcasts off the ground. I'd like to thank the Rugby League community for listening to these and embracing and offering us some really rich and valuable feedback. I hope you'll continue to listen to the rest of the podcast series. But finally, I'd like to wish you a thanks to Lindsay Burrow, to Jamie Peacock, to Sam Burgess, and for Sam Tompkins for having the faith and trust to come along and share their own amazing stories with us. But the final thanks is to you, the listener. High performance is within all of us. And I hope that you've enjoyed listening to some fantastic examples of people that have understood that basic premise and applied it in their lives. High performance matters a lot. And we appreciate you coming with us on the journey. Oh, I've loved these episodes, man. And listen, can I just say, please track down at Liquid Thinker on Instagram. That's Damien's handle. Ping him a note, send him a message, tell him what you've made of these conversations. And don't forget whether you want the uh, High Performance Daily Journal, 365 Ways to Become Your Best. It's available now. Whether you want to come and see us on tour in 2023, whether you want to sign up to our free members club, The Circle, all you have to do is go to thehighperformancepodcast.com. That's thehighperformancepodcast.com. Look, please continue to spread what you're learning from these conversations. Thanks to the whole team for their hard work. And remember, there is no secret, people. It's there for you. So chase your world-class basics. Don't get high on your own supply. Remain humble, curious, and empathetic. And we'll see you soon.